Beloved children of God, uh, it's a pleasure to be in front of you again this week. I will be continuing through Drew's uh, sermon series on the Psalms. I know we that weeks ago, uh, and I'm going to pick up. Uh, today we're going to talk about Psalm 3, the third psalm in the book. And so uh, it will be on the screen, and we'll also be roughly in the middle of your Bible. You just open my right there, and you should get there. Psalm 3. This is David composing a poem or a song in the midst of a life crisis. We'll talk a little bit about that. And it reads, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying to me, there is no help for you in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. My glory is the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wait again for the Lord sustains me. I'm not afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Rise up, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, there's kind of a cultural trope that we open the spider. It's a wonderful creature of God. <laughs> there's a cultural trope that we have uh, that go that, that focuses on the idea that everybody, no matter how they live their life, no matter what they believe, will reach out to God at some point. Right? We have a phrase, uh, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? This idea that if you are in war and there are bombs exploding around you and bullets flying by your head, you will pray to God. Sam Smith is a pop singer from the UK who's kind of big these days, and he, one of his biggest hits, the refrain in the song is, Everybody prays in the end. From pop music to military culture, we have a trope that runs through our culture, which is this deep belief that no matter what your life has been like, no matter what your day-to-day -day has been, there will come a time where things will get so hard, so scary, that even atheists will call out to God. There's another kind of trope, a device that is often used in narratives that we share, whether we're telling stories or we're watching the screen, um, and it is the, the trope of betrayal. This idea that if you really want to suck in an audience, you'll have someone turn on another person. You'll get the audience uh, invested in a relationship or in a community, and then someone will be a traitor. Someone will backstab somebody else. You see this over and over in pro wrestling. There is no bigger moment than Hulk Hogan joining the NWO. 
Going from the greatest wrestling hero there ever was to being the greatest wrestling villain. It changed the dynamics of what was the biggest wrestling promotion in the country and all of it, right? Men soap operas, right? Pro wrestling. They're soap operas. The evil twin will always show up. The person who's a half-sibling will be in love with someone they didn't know they were related to. The uncle will show up who everyone thought was dead. And it will throw everything in flux. The greatest betrayal ever in kind of American popular culture is to be found in The Lion King. When Scar kills Mufasa, the first time you see that, the audience gasps, they lean back, they can't believe what would happen when Simba has to run off and they think Scar is going to have his nephew killed as well. There's a reason why, in my opinion, Scar is the greatest villain of all time. It's because he is dastardly in the way he acts. We see this in stories across genres. There's another trope uh, that exists, especially uh, in our culture, though not only here. And it is the idea that it's just you against the world. That the greatest kind of triumph is the lone cowboy who's able to take over all the bad guys, right? The one person who's standing for righteousness as the rest of the world is falling apart. Uh, when I was growing up, one of the biggest musical artists in the country was uh, Tupac Shakur. He had an entire album and a hit song called Me Against the World, and it still has influence today. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was at an event uh, at work at the University of Washington, and it was for students who were considering college. Uh, and most of them were first-generation potential students, students who don't have any immediate family who'd ever gone to college before. And we were talking about what it might mean to prepare to go away to college. And one of the students said, here's what I know. For me to get into college, it's just me against the world. And I have to fight my way in, but I'm going to do it. It's, it's, it permeates our culture. All of this shows up in Psalm 3. Psalm 3, most of the Psalms, though not all of them, are written by David, King David. David's one of the most famous figures out of the scriptures. And David writes the third Psalm in the midst of crisis, in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of feeling like everyone, perhaps even God, is against him. It is him, and it is only him. David's in the midst of a conflict with family. His son, Absalom, has him on the run and has taken over the king, the kingship. Absalom is David's third son, who we get introduced to in the scriptures because uh, his sister, Tamar, uh, is raped by her half-brother, David's first son, Amnon. In the midst of this, Absalom gets really angry and plots and eventually kills his older half-brother, David's first son, because of what he did to his sister. Then, 
Absalom, who's apparently the most beautiful man in all of Israel, a title that in some ways was given to David in his younger days, uh, is beginning to use his fame and his beauty and his charm to get people on his side. And then he positions himself in the city gates and basically begins undermining David's leadership and talking to people about the way the justice system is not designed to work for them. And if they would come to his side, he would build a better system. And eventually, after four years of it, Absalom, David's own son, has killed his half-brother and has been sitting in the gates for four years, stirring up trouble, and eventually gets enough people on his side that David is on the run. He's running through the desert. He's running through the mountains. Absalom has appointed himself as king. And David writes Psalm 3 as he's hiding in a cave somewhere in the wilderness, wondering if he's going to be killed by his son or his son's army. In many ways, I think the story of David is the first of all. This is like the fourth act in. We've had giants and stones. We've had situations where he set people to be killed so he can steal their wives. We've had all kinds of drama in the story of David. And now, after being cared for by God, by God's people, being anointed king, ruling over the nation of Israel, David is hiding in the wilderness, in some cave, underneath some rock, in some crevice, with just a few loyal folks still on his side, hiding from his son, who he's worried is going to kill him. David feels like, or at least the people around David feel like, it's just him against the world. They tell him, he tells us in the psalm, people are telling him, not even God can help you now. It is you, and it is you alone. And everyone else, the entire world, is desiring for your downfall. David tells us this in the psalm. This is the myth. Uh, this is the context in which David writes what he writes. Eventually, in the psalm, David says, And yet, it is you that sustains me, and it is you that wakes me up in the morning. Theologians over the years have uh, done a lot of thinking about grace, and talking about the different kinds of grace that God pours into our lives. They talk about what is often called special grace, or saving grace, the actual grace of God forgiving our sins and adopting us into God's family. They sometimes, depending on the tradition and the theologian, talk about something called prevenient grace. The grace of even being open to turning toward God. right? To even thinking about having a spark of faith. That we can't even do that on our own. That it's all grace all the way through. And another kind of grace that theologians have talked about over the centuries is something that's often called common grace. The grace of God that is available to every living creature on earth, to every human being. 
the grace of breath, the grace of the beat of the heart, the grace of rising in the morning, the grace of the beauty of flowers, the grace of the, the music of the waves of the ocean, the grace of sunbeams giving us life, that all of that is a grace, is a gift of God. So in the midst of David's crisis, in the midst of betrayal and drama and fear for his life, in the midst of those who surround him telling him that even God cannot save him now, in the midst of this, David relies on the grace of God because David recognizes God's presence in common grace. In the fact that he still woke up in the morning and he was confident he would wake up again because God would give him breath and God would give him life. And it is that recognition that then empowers David to call upon God for God's saving grace, for deliverance in the language of the psalm. David says, because you sustain me when I wake up in the morning, I know I can call on you to save me now. Even though the world feels like it's falling in on me, even though it feels like even my most beloved have turned on me, even though those who said they would follow me have abandoned me, I know because you got me up this morning. I know because I'm breathing air. I know because my heart is beating that you are still God. And that if I call on you, you will listen. And that your grace will deliver me, even from my enemy. Most people who are Christian can point to a time or many times, when God's saving grace has felt really present in your life. The moment you first turn to God, the feeling, the reception of forgiveness for sin, a moment of intense praise or worship where you are sure God's spirit is present with you, a miraculous healing a feeling of the presence of God through a really difficult time, the death of a family member, a divorce, an illness, financial crisis. Many of us have felt some moment of great kind of uh, knowledge that God's saving grace is real. But most of us, day to day, experience that kind of visceral sense of God's saving grace a few times in life. The day-to-day feels a lot more mundane. It feels a, a little bit like God can be a little bit distant, maybe even absent. Most Christians have experienced times of illness or stress or distress or crisis and wondered where God is. Is God even listening? Is God present? Have I been abandoned even by my God? What David teaches us in Psalm 3 is that in moments where God's saving grace 
where deliverance might, uh, where God's saving grace seems distant or not to exist, where God's deliverance seems far, far away, it might make sense to turn and pay attention to the common graces of God, to the breath that you're breathing, to the community that you're a part of, to the sun that shines even when there's clouds blocking the rays from hitting our skin. Throughout the Psalms, we see people responding to God with the full range of human emotion. Love, joy, thankfulness, fear, hatred, worry. The whole range of what it means to be human. They're responding to God. Some feel really joyous. Some feel really angry. They feel lots of different ways. But one of the themes that runs across many of the Psalms is a turn to the common grace of God. A turn to the reality that nothing exists. No creature lives without the love of God sustaining all of creation. That everything exists because God holds it into existence. Eventually, while David is on the run, he decrees that no one is to kill his son. Even as they are trying to defend David and keep the crown. Now, David's not the only person that Absalom has uh, betrayed or has done dirty. And so eventually, uh, he's riding through the forest on the back of a horse. Um, and he has this beautiful, flowing, long, thick hair, which he's famous for. Um, and as he's riding through the forest, that hair gets tangled up in some tree branches, which are hanging low, and he's stuck hanging in the air, like, doing like this, like, saying, hey, and no one's around, as he hangs from his hair, uh, something I can totally relate to. <laughs> and eventually, someone who he's done quite dirty, uh, someone who works for David, he's burned his fields for this. Uh, hears that Absalom is in this distress and goes and finds him and kills him. And David learns the news that he is still king, uh, but he mourns this news because he knows it means that Absalom is dead. And there's a whole other story that happens afterward about your troops are going to think you hate them and this whole situation, but I wanted you to know how the story is all. Uh, in good soap opera fashion, Absalom dies of grisly death hanging by his hair. David is famous for a few things, perhaps most famous among Christians, for being described as a man after God's own heart. And he, in a moment of crisis, did not describe the way God helped him defeat Goliath, did not describe any of his military victories, did not describe any of the things he's famous for writing or composing as the evidence of God's goodness. He turned to the fact that God raised him up with breath another morning, that he woke up to see another day. 
that the common grace of God sustaining all of life and all of creation was evidence enough that God's saving grace would be coming his way. So you may feel today or sometime soon or sometime recently that God is absent. You might feel like the world is against you. You may feel like you've been betrayed by your best friends or by your family or even by your church. And if that's true for you, I invite you to look to the presence of God's grace in your life. And if it's too dark right now in the midst of that betrayal, in the midst of that loneliness, if it's too dark to see God's saving grace, to remember the times where God has shown up viscerally, very close and present in your life, then I encourage you to look for God's common grace. Pay attention to your breath. Pay attention to your heart. Remember the fact that you woke up this morning. That the air you breathe has enough oxygen. That the sun still shines. That flowers look and smell beautiful. That the air after the rain feels crisp and clean. That coffee still fills the air when it's that your favorite food still tastes good, that folks in this room still love you dearly. If you can't remember, if you can't see God's saving grace really right now, I encourage you to look to God's common grace. Every living creature from that spider that I flicked earlier to everyone in this room, to the billions of people who live around the world, every living creature is sustained by the love and the grace of God. There is no life. There is no love. There is no pain without God holding all of this together. Take that, some common grace in your life, as a reminder that God is still God. And that God's grace is still coming. And I don't know what God's saving, delivering grace is going to look like in your life. At some point, sick people die. Lonely people stay lonely a little bit longer. Like it all doesn't always work out. David gets to stay king, but his son, as bad of a son as he was, his son is still killed. So I don't know what deliverance looks like in your life. But like David, I believe it will come and it will deliver. And I believe that the common grace of God that is freely shared on all of creation is evidence that God is still God. And even if you turn and look for the common grace of God, you have a hard time seeing it then I encourage you to do what David did and keep calling to God. Rise up and deliver, David says to God. Wake up, God. Save me again. Show your face in my life. Prove 
all of the doubters, all of the haters wrong. Show that you are still God. Keep calling. Because God's grace is still pouring when we see it or not on all of creation. Deliverance belongs to the Lord, David says. May your grace be on your people, David says. I encourage us, wherever we are, to remember David hiding in a cave, his whole kingdom in flux, betrayed by his beloved son, calling on God because he remembers that every breath he takes is a gift, is a grace of God, and that that small grace is evidence that bigger grace can come. Wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, look for God's grace in common things, in everyday things, because that's the evidence that deliverance can come. Rise up, O God and deliver your people.